I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. This week on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, we're talking all about growth. Not just growing food like fruits and vegetables, but broadening our minds, bodies, and spirits. How do we consciously and unconsciously nourish ourselves and our communities for a better, brighter future? We'll sit down with Emmy and four times James Beard award-winning TV personality and chef, Andrew Zimmern, who will share his perspective on growing our society through food. And later, we'll meet Scott Chasky, a poet, farmer, and educator who's dedicated his life to finding inspiration in nature and making sure others do too. In the early years, it was my enthusiasm and passion for working with the soil. And that's probably the key to what I would want to pass on. And it just was there. It was just a natural way of acting and being. It's time to come together on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. When we say something is growing nicely, what comes to mind first may be fruits, vegetables, or perhaps flowers. It can also refer to personal growth as the conscious growing of oneself, our community, and society in its entirety. We must continue to nourish ourselves and our neighbors with basic fundamentals, our intentions to nurture one another, providing our basic needs, something as simple as wholesome foods offered with a true sense of giving ourselves and great compassion for all walks of life. And it's already happening, and hopefully, this way of being will thrive going forward. Fortunately, there are such gifted people using their talents as an example, so we may all grow. Over the years, musicians such as Willie Nelson support a farm aid to help farmers stay on the land. Performers such as George Clooney, funding support the UN's World Food Program. And even chefs such as Jose Andreas, World Central Kitchen, to nourish communities. Their personal and public self is a prime example to us all. My next guest is in the elite category of those helping to grow our society. He has devoted his life to exploring and promoting cultural acceptance and to understanding through food. Sharing his public self, he's an Emmy and four times James Beard award-winning TV personality, chef, writer, and teacher. He has devoted his life to tolerance through many philanthropic endeavors He's paved the way with his many groundbreaking TV series, inspiring the globe about food and culture. It's my pleasure to welcome Chef Andrew Zimmer. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. <laughs> How are you doing, Chef? I'm good. How are you guys? Good, Great. good. So, Andrew, uh, I, I know you have some roots that kind of go back here to the East Coast and the East End. You spent some time in the in the Hamptons, I believe, right? Uh, grew up there. My my father went out uh, to the East End in uh, 1948 uh, for the first time. Uh, bought a house on uh, Dayton Lane in the village oh. of East Hampton in 51, 52. Uh, I was born in sixty one. Uh, left the hospital. Uh, my father drove with my mother holding me in my arms. I think in those days they kept you in the hospital uh, for two days. And um, the first ground that I touched, according to my parents, uh, feet touching ground mm -hmm. because I was you know, being held swaddled in the hospital. I think that's the correct term. Uh, I was swaddled and then <laughs> lay next to my mother and then in her lap as she's wheeled down, she gets in the car, she's holding me, she's holding me. The first ground that I touched was not ground at all. They put my feet in the water at Main Beach uh, on July 7th, 1961. 
Um, and then my parents uh, built their first home out there in 65, 66. Uh, and we moved in, sold Dayton Lane and moved in in 67. Got my first paycheck for cooking in a kitchen out there. Um, what, what kitchen would that be? Uh, there was a restaurant, Irene Gould owned a restaurant in the 60s and early 70s called The Quiet Clam. The Quiet Clam? Yeah, yes. Uh, yep. Right on yep. Maggie and her girlfriend, uh, sorry, Irene and her girlfriend Maggie, uh, her lifelong partner, um, uh, ran this place and uh, really good family friends of my parents. And so when I turned, the summer I was about to turn for my birthday is July 4th. So I'm 13 and change, and I'm. I say to my father, "I'm going to be 14. I think I need a, a raise and allowance." And he says, "You know," he shouted some epithets at me, and uh, told me that there was no allowance. Uh, <laughs> you need you, to you get a job. So all my friends were working for landscape companies, uh, and you know. 5 a.m. to 3 p.m. And, you know, you're low end on the totem pole. You're carrying wheelbarrows sure. of manure to, to guards. I mean, just hauling sacks of wood chips. I mean, you know, it's. I, I was just like, no way. I, and you're it, saying there's got to be a better life. Well, I, I had <laughs> wanted to cook. I mean, it really wasn't a negative. I said, well, I want to cook in restaurants. And uh, my parents said, first of all, how are you going to get there? Second of all, no one will hire someone who's, you know, 13, about to be 14. Um, so I waited. It only took about a week, but uh, Irene was at our house. And and I said to her, you know, I, I did the thing like an almost famous, you know, I said to Irene, mom and dad say it's fine. Can I work at the restaurant? She said, of course. Uh, then I went to them and I said, Irene says, with your blessing, I can work in the restaurant. <laughs> and, you know, they found me out pretty quick, but we negotiated something. If I could find a way to get there, I could work there. And I found a way to get there and I worked there during the summers. It was fantastic. Uh, I just, to be a part of a team in a kitchen to me was, there was absolutely nothing like it. And in the seventies, you know, cause I worked there in 1975, 1976, I, th I think they sold the restaurant in 77. Uh, and then it turned into, it was a quiet clam for another year. Right. They didn't own it. Yeah. Then it turned into something else. But, you know, those years, like the, you know, the, the, the creatives and the celebrities and all that had gone out there, but it wasn't ruined. It, it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't a mess. You could still make a left or a right out of your driveway, regardless of what street you lived on, uh, which is sort of an impossibility these days. Uh, it, and it hadn't become sort of the, the pretentious Kardashianization. Right. It was more artistic. Yeah. It was more artistic. It was, it was incredible. I mean, yeah. you know, Ina was every day at the Barefoot Contessa. Right. You know, Rudy was still making the donuts at Dreesen's, you know, right. I mean, there was, it was still old world East Hampton as it was shifting into new world East Hampton, as I like to say, and the food scene was just starting in restaurants, mm -hmm. restaurants was starting to, to grow. And so it was an incredible time and place to be there and to learn how to cook the local seafood and what was coming out of the gardens. Um, 
Maggie and Irene had a deal with Pat, who ran the Amagansett at Farmer's Market at the time. Oh, uh, you know, what they, you know, just like, it wasn't like a chef today going to a, a farm and saying, I want to grow miniature corn. It was the reverse. You went to the farm and said, what are you growing? And then they based their menus right. off of that. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I just had an education that you can't get anywhere else. So yeah, it was really fabulous. So speaking of education, uh, was this your stepping stone to the Culinary Institute of America? Uh, yes, I was at CIA for a day. Um, it was, uh, <laughs> I was getting kicked out of school at Vassar. And I went over to CIA and did the tour and all the rest of this kind of sure. thing. And by the way, in, in 1980, there was not a waiting list for students. It was not, it was, the CIA was a fantastic institution. I'm, I'm actually going to speak there next month. Uh, and I've done a lot of work with them at their West Coast campus as well. Uh, but I went there for a day and I walked around and then I sat in on a class and I'm exaggerating to make a point, so please, no angry letters or tweets. But it basically <laughs> was like an old German guy with a pointer showing you how to break down a chicken by pointing to something on the blackboard. And he had he was he was teaching you how to do it the Western European way. And I had already been overseas a bunch with my dad and I was so into cooking and I, I thought to myself, well, that's not how a chicken is broken down in China and it's broken down differently in Vietnam and it's broken down differently in South America. So why it just, and, and I'm not saying that I was, I was woke back in the eighties, but, but I, I observed just the the literal dissonance between mm -hmm. this idea of food. And, and you also have to remember back then, I'd already traveled a lot with my dad. I'd already worked for uh, a summer overseas in France at that point. They were, um, you know, like ethnic food, which is a horrible term. Uh, but I think that's what they called it was taught like your second year for like three weeks, you know, now CIA has changed radically. Now everything is hands-on. You have the right equipment. It's expensive. There's a waiting list. It's the, but they're giving a culinary education that is confluent and consistent with what's going on with the food scene mm -hmm. at this moment. Right. So, you know, at CIA now they're, they're, teaching you, you know, Thai food techniques or whatever, and letting everyone know that it's as valid as French cuisine. That was not the message that was given then. And I was already a globalist. I didn't know it at the time, but I already was. I traveled so much with my dad, uh, who, uh, along with a handful of other people, ran a big international advertising agency. I, I just knew there was a whole world of food out there that was way more interesting than a... Uh, a pyard of chicken. Well, for a long time, the only way you could really learn those techniques was by traveling. So I think that it's a good sign. Do you think that education is finally kind of catching up with that? Oh yeah, but the you know you know chef, you know the the deal as well. It, you know you go to music school, you have one type type of music education. You go and join a four piece rock band, play in a garage for two years, and then start doing gigs you have a different kind of musical education. 
And I think most people would tell you, if you want to be a rock star, go play in a garage somewhere and then get out on the road. If you want to be a great culinarian, you know, these days, you know, culinary school offers a very, very deep, rich education, but you still have to go out if you want to be a rock star and work in kitchens with other rock stars. And it's still, it's still a craft. You still have to learn side by side with other people. Now, you know, today you can go onto YouTube and Google uh, Mm -hmm. clams with black bean sauce uh, slash Chinese. And up will come 500 videos of incredible chefs all over the world, Chinese cooking and using different techniques. So you don't, in a way you can stand side by side with another chef learning different techniques and things. I I was showing somebody the other day um, how to do a wok tossed uh, clam dish. And I do all mine in the pan, in one pan. But I said in, in, in restaurants, you would take a giant wand, you know, a 12-inch spider wand, and you'd put 15, 16 clams on there, and you would dip them in water so they just open and then throw them in the wok, and it's done in 30, 40 seconds. You have to put a lid on it and wait four or five minutes for cold, you know, count neck yeah. clams to open up, right? And th- the technique is often done with very thin-shelled clams uh, over there, a manila clam, stuff like that. And so the, the, but the technique thing where people see, oh my God, they dip them in boiling water. It's like, yes, that's how it's done over there. You no longer have to go to a Chinese restaurant to learn that. You can simply look it up online. It's an incredible, incredible thing. Now, I think that's a great learning tool. I also agree with you that culinary education, formal culinary education has caught up with because the student desires there and the student knowledge going into culinary school, I think is a lot stronger. They've grown up watching food television and they've seen food travel shows, food cooking shows and everything in between. When in 1980, I think it was, that I went there for a day, it was Jacques and Julia and a handful of others, right? I mean, but it was that was yeah. the age... Food Network wasn't invented yet, right? I mean, there still was this food media thing about to explode, and then everyone got a lot wiser. I mean, I, I, I go into a restaurant, I order a bowl of pho, and my, my 16-year-old says, Dad, it's pho, you know? <laughs> and, and, it's, it's, there's, and, and there was – I used to make a joke that that was kind of pretentious. Um, and then I realized he's just grown up in a food world where you use the pronunciation as it is in the extant language of its origin. We don't call the one-eared painter uh, from the 19th century Van Gogh, even though that's how his name is pronounced in the Netherlands. We call him Van Gogh. Uh, But today in art history at at university level, they, they, pronounce his name Van Gogh because they they want to pay that respect to him. I grew up at a time where the Americanized word was the used was the term of choice and now we're flipping around. So my son is reminding me that we should be pronouncing those words in their language. Now um, it, you know there's a way to do it that is less pretentious than others. Uh, I think we need to make sure that we're not being cartoonish about it and end up shooting ourselves in the foot. 
but I do agree with my kid. I mean, it, it, we should, we should pay it. It's, it's not faux, it's fuh, right? And yet for 30 years, you know, I was taught it was faux. And you have to unlearn, if you're old like me, you have to unlearn that. Well, Andrew, we're very lucky to have you with us today. I want to thank you for joining us and sharing these amazing stories. You are a fabulous teacher and uh, have impacted many, many, many people in a, in a very good way. Oh, it's very kind of you. I would like to leave people with, with one thought. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this world is shrinking drastically at the same time where we have a, a, an irrevocable climate crisis uh, that we have to deal with, you know, it, we, you know, if, if, if we stopped all the bad things we're doing right now, it would take 30 years to get to even, uh, and stop, you know, polluting our, our atmosphere. Um, and we've never lived in a more divisive time, uh, globally, uh, than we do right now. And especially here in America and food is a universal connector. As, as my friend Jose Andres always said, we just need bigger tables, um, so I would ask everyone to be kind with each other and try to make your tables bigger. Um, and for anyone who's interested in how we do that, all my information, no paywall, no nothing is at andrewzimmern.com. And I would encourage people to go uh, and check that out. A simple yet profound proverb that is more true today than ever before. If you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Let's continue to nurture this way of living so we all keep growing. I'm George Hirsch with today's Good to Know. Frites or French fries are one of the most popular side dishes in the world, but who owns the origin of fries? Common lore claims that the original fry was born in Belgium, where the locals were particularly fond of fried fish. When the River Meuse froze in 1680, they fried potatoes. Belgian frites are commonly served piled into a paper cone with a touch of mayonnaise. But the French take the name of the dish a bit more literally. Palm Pont Neuf, sold by pushcart vendors on Paris's oldest bridge since the late 18th century. During World War I, American soldiers stationed in France dubbed the potatoes French fries. Today, Canada is one of the world's largest manufacturer of frozen French fries. Makes sense that a national dish Poutine, fries topped with cheese curds and gravy, was first served in rural Quebec during the 50s. Other nations take ownership of a name, but fries are undeniably American, where the average person consumes about 29 pounds a year. And that is good to know. Food can be as comforting as a hug, giving us a sense of belonging. Our human nature is to seek comfort. When we are comfortable, Life feels good. When we eat comfort foods, it can bring back happy memories from our past. Just the aroma of certain foods can trigger these positive feelings. There are positive effects of eating comfort foods, offering a sense of structure and control. If you're consciously choosing the foods you eat, there's an opportunity to take control over how you feel. It's been proven eating sweet and starchy foods help our bodies make serotonin, making us feel calmer and decreasing the stress hormone cortisol. Our brain tells us that eating fresh baked homemade cookies or a steamy bowl of pasta will make us feel good, in moderation of course. Eating for comfort is okay, just be aware how often and how much. Hey Alex. Hey George, Uh, I'm excited for this episode because I know that your favorite food is the potato chip. 
And so when I saw we were talking about potatoes, I got pretty comfortable with this topic. And it's not even a national holiday, but we're, yeah, we could, we could start off talking about chips. Um, <laughs> you know, we should celebrate George Crumb. You know, after all, the potato chip and the invention of potato chip was actually quite by accident, right? I guess so. I have no idea. You, you're the potato chip expert. I just know that you love it. Is George Crumb really his real name? It sounds like a joke. It does. Yeah, it, it's, it is really his name. And he was from Saratoga. He was a chef in Saratoga. And the, he was dismissed with the potatoes as sent out into the dining room. So he sent them back. He thought he was doing a joke. He made them very, very crispy. And thus began the potato chip. But you and I have a few potato chip adventures of our, of our own. Um, if we take it back to, we were in a couple competitions with the big wine fests and food festivals, and we designed this signature burger platter. But what scored, I think, in people's minds beyond the burger, which was very good, was actually the chip. Yeah, we made our own flavor blend for that chip, which that was actually my first experience into the world of creating like flavors for things like a chip, you know, in the, in the professional chef world that we both come from and the type of cooking that we do, you don't really make flavors for a processed food, like a chip very often. And I thought that it was great. We went to a local potato chip manufacturer, we got all sorts of different flavor packet powder samples, and we just started mixing and matching like mad scientists. And I think what we ended up with was some type of like a crazy barbecue, Salt and vinegar. I know we went heavy vinegar. It was almost like a southern style barbecue sauce potato chip. I think we had a little cheddar flavor in there, some barbecue flavoring in there, definitely some herb, and then the extra vinegar from the salt and vinegar chips, which I could just eat that powder with a spoon all day. Ah, so let me refresh your memory because we got to go back into my favorite flavor profile, which uh, especially in the early years of my TV show was the caramelized garlic. Yeah. So we we kind of started with that main flavor component and then and then backed it off. So it had this kind of hint of garlic to all the all the flavors that that you were discussing. And I think we we pretty much nailed it um pretty quickly. We maybe it was only about four or five rounds of of signature chips that we made uh, doing them a couple different ways. But I think when we did them in mass production and we had the same local farmer who has a uh, potato chip company produce them because we served like 3,000 people that night for our signature burger and chips. So, you know, it was, it was a great way of, uh, of, of creating something that was fun and, uh, of course, one of, one of my favorites. But I'm wondering if, you know, because I've traveled quite a bit around the world. And I have made it a point. Some people will, will buy local antiques or local things. I would always buy local chips. <laughs> well, so. I, had, I had my own embarrassing potato chip story on the micro end of things because I, too, am a chip connoisseur. And I know that whenever either of us go anywhere, we always like to try the local potato chips and, and there's always different flavorings and you get kettle ones and crispy ones. So I was working in fine dining and uh, I was at the River Cafe and the chef told me to make go frets one day. Mm -hmm. 
Now, not having gone to culinary school and not having a fine dining background and only having been there for a couple of weeks, I didn't know what a gofret was. So what my move was, was I would pretend that I had to go to the bathroom and then I'd go and Google things that I didn't know what they were. <laughs> and then I would come back and make them until time, I learned. Wait, wait, wait. All this time, I always thought you had like a, a little problem that you always had to run out. That's oh, what I'm you've sure been doing. a lot of people That's do. That's what you've I, been doing? I have a problem, but it's not the, the bathroom type. It's mental. So, oh, okay. Continue. So I Google it and I come back and I'm like, what are you kidding me? And in front of the chef, I go, go frets. What do you want me to make potato chips? <laughs> and he got so mad. He goes, it's not a go. It's not a potato chip guy. It's a go fret. And I'm like, well, it sounds like I got a slice of potato really thin on a mandolin and then deep fry it. <laughs> and it was always like this like edginess that we had back and forth where like for me to understand things, I would have to take what fine dining is and simplify it. And then for them to elevate what my education was, they would be like, it's not a chip, it's a go fret. And it became like this tug of war that happened with a lot of different things that I learned there. But either way, it became one of my favorite things to cook for hors d'oeuvres. And I think it's a great thing that people can make at home too. If you just have one of those plastic Japanese mandolins, you can shave some potatoes really thin, deep fry them in a little pot, and they go great with tuna tartare on top, maybe some braised short ribs and a little bit of cheese. Um, it, you could substitute a crostini out for those, and you can put all sorts of toppings on them and really have a high-end cocktail party with them. Now, just to point out for us very simple potato chip folk, um, <laughs> a gaufret is basically a like a waffle potato that's cut one way, and then you turn the potato and you cut the other way to get the Yeah, gaufret. the waffle pattern, I think, is yeah. what's important about it. Exactly. It's like exactly. a super thin waffle fry, yes. but they're delicious. And, yes. and that extra surface area really gives you more crispiness, too, you, and less oil. So the oil drains off of it a little bit better, and you get a really crispy chip when you do that crisscross pattern, like you said, on the mandolin with the rib teeth. There is a saying, your mind is a garden, your thoughts are the seeds. You can grow flowers or you can grow weeds, which we can also equate to building a healthy body, mind, and spirit. It is a lifestyle of dedication, inspiration, and taking these steps every day for our own well-being and others. So this is what happens when one that sows and grows into the poetry of farm life. We are all better for it. Our next guest, Scott Chesky, is a farmer, writer, and educator. For 30 years, he cultivated garlic, greens, potatoes, and 60 other crops for the Peconic Land Trust at Quail Hill Farm in Amagansett, New York, one of the original CSAs in the country a pioneer of the community-supported agriculture movement. He is past president of the Northeast Organic Farmers Association of New York and was honored as Farmer of the Year in 2013. As a multi-book author, Publishers Weekly commented, the delight of his writing is a balancing of the poetry of farm life with touches of humor. His next book to be published is a work in progress, Soil and Spirit and will be published by Milkweed Editions in 2022. Hi, Scott. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you are one of the pioneers and the leaders in a CSA. Um, what was the brainchild? How, how did that, it's just like you're kicking around in the field one day and said, yeah. you know what, let's sell some shares. Well, there, there's a little bit more of a story to it. Um, I thought so. I, I We lived in England, my wife and I, for a 10 years in the 80s. And uh, when we had a child and we decided to come back, 
Um, my father-in-law, a wonderful man and a brilliant sculptor named William King, Bill King, and and uh, my mother-in-law, Connie Fox, a painter, uh, had joined this um, this CSA uh, with ten other families uh, in in Bridgehampton. And um, Bill said to me, and this was the very beginning. I mean, no one knew anything about CSAs. Um, but uh, Bill said, we're having a meeting on Saturday of this thing we're involved with. Do you want to come along? And so I did. I followed him to that meeting. And uh, we had decided to try our luck on this side, back in, on this side of the sea. And um, the CSA needed... Um, farm workers. And, uh, I said, well, I like this idea. And, uh, and there I was for 30 years. <laughs> did, did farming in, in England, uh, make a, make a, a part of your, of your, your roots, your own personal roots? Yeah. And that was a very different kind of, I, I would, I would call it gardening really, because, um, you know, we, we wound up living in a, a incredible place, a, a little fishing village called Mausel. Uh, it's spelled Mousehole. We lived in Love, <laughs> Love. We lived in Love Lane Cottage, Mousehole, Cornwall. <laughs> and uh, when I heard that these uh, cliff meadows, this very steep land leading off mm -hmm. to the down to the sea, with a drop off of about a hundred feet. Um, but but beautiful soil. When I heard that these cliff meadows. Uh, were called the, the first ground in Britain, um, I thought, well, what does that mean? And what it meant was that the, um, the first potatoes, the new potatoes and flowers mm -hmm. to be delivered to um, Covent Garden Market in London came from these meadows. And I thought, wow, that's an extraordinary historical thing to be involved with. And there were only a couple older chaps, um, you know, doing it at the time. And uh, uh, it had at one time been the occupation of many people in the village mm -hmm. and surrounding fields. Um, but I wanted to get involved with it. And so I did. So, um, uh, you know, for eight years, I cultivated these cliff meadows, and uh, it was all by hand. It was an extraordinary thing to learn. And my mentor <laughs> was a 80-year-old Cornishman named um, Edgar oh my Wallace. Goodness. It was an amazing thing. And, but, but then I had my hands in the soil in a way that I never had before. And when I came back to this country, and this concept of CSA was just being born, it just was a natural transition, basically. Very different uh, kind of farming uh, and cultivating, but really, really something that just called to me. So... Yeah. So you traded in, let's say, the peninsula of uh, Cornwall <laughs> to the island here, but you stuck with the potatoes stuck <laughs> when you're looking potatoes. for the region. Yeah. And there was, I'll tell you, um, I don't know, do you want to talk for an hour about potatoes? We could, I, we could talk a <laughs> week about them. We're, we're Long Islanders. We, our roots are potatoes. It was so special the way, so Edgar, this thing of, of getting the first new potatoes, which were actually planted in late January and harvested, you know, in March. I mean, it was very early season there and um because it was a it's a maritime climate even though it's on the it's eight degrees further north than we are here but again it was another peninsula so we've actually lived 40 years of our adult lives on peninsulas 
facing one another, just 3,000 miles away. But um, the magic of getting those new potatoes it was so much more than, you know, uh, opening a, a, a box or a bag of potatoes that you got from the from the supermarket. It, there, there was so much mystique involved in it and choosing the varieties and and how to plant and doing it all by hand with these with these cliff shovels that had been used literally used for hundreds of years. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. I was going to say what did the hands of an 80-year-old cliff farmer who dug potatoes his whole life look like? <laughs> Rough. Yeah. <laughs> Crack walnuts. Right. Bare-handed. That's a handshake that I don't want to get. <laughs> he was quite a character. <laughs> now, now Scott, you're kind of looked at in the farming community as a, a rock star. And I know apprentices and people to intern, they vie to be able to get under your tutelage. What messages do you try to leave with them, you know, if they just come in for a season that could actually impact their life? Mm, you know, I, I, it, 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 this whole process was so organic, you know, in, in, in many ways that I never really considered that. And so I, I'm sure that the in the early years, it was my enthusiasm and, and passion for working with the soil. And that's probably the key to what I would want to pass on. And uh, it just was there. It was just a natural way of acting and being. Um, and part of it has to do on this particular farm at Quail Hill Farm, with the land itself, there's a, a sort of magical quality involved with that land, which was left to the Pecanic Land Trust, the conservation organization that I worked for, by a really wonderful woman named Deborah Light, right. uh, and and donated in the end 220 acres of land to uh, to the Pecanic Land Trust. So there was this whole it was a there was a whole ecology involved with it. It was it was you know working with the soil, learning these. Um, uh, sustainable or regenerative farming techniques, uh, making it up as we went along. So there was always discovery and mm -hmm. it was an imaginative process. And then there was this heritage from Deborah who, who had a love of the land and, and it was there. It was palpable. It was part, part of the land and, and is still is. Yeah. And you are still going on still to this day, um, with experiments in in the garden um that you started 30 years ago yes i stepped back from you know the role as as farmer uh two years ago uh, right before the covid thing actually and um but we had begun a project uh with an interesting woman named jean jablet um on uh trialing uh growing Chinese medicinal herbs. Um, in, in 2003, she brought us the first plants. And uh, it was always something I, I was very passionate about. However, it was at the bottom of the list because we had to grow <laughs> radishes and lettuce and potatoes and tomatoes for and garlic. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for all the, you know, 200 and some families that were part of the CSA and all that sort of thing. So we kept it going and we, you know, she would bring us some new plants, but um, now I actually get to focus on it. And so it's in this sort of neat little protected bit tucked in a back field and, and I can go and tend it now. And um, uh, it's, and I'm 
it's so joyful because I'm learning so much more about plants than I could when I had to get them in the ground quickly and harvest them and, you know, send them out and all that sort of thing. And now I'm really sort of living and watching and learning from the plants. Um, yeah, so real pleasure. Scott, what has writing done for your farming or maybe what has your farming done for your writing? You know, that's so I just yesterday, as a matter of fact, I um, I, 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 I just got a, a, a new book. I just received a new book called Old Growth about old growth forests. Right. And and there was the, the first um, piece in um, uh, it's a series of essays was by. Uh, a woman named Julia Shipley. And I said, well, I know that name somehow. And I wasn't sure how I knew it. So I went and searched around in my, in my library here. And I found this, uh, these two uh, books that she had sent me years ago after reading a book that I wrote called Seed Time. Mm -hmm. And, and she also had written about my books. She had, she's a journalist and she'd written about my books. And so I reread this note that she sent to me. I received this years ago, but I just found it uh, yesterday. And she says she at a, at a farming conference, she, she, her word was she accosted me. I don't remember that. <laughs> and, and, and she, she's, you know, a writer and a farmer herself. And, and so she said, which comes first? I guess she was very anxious, the writing or the farming. And according to her, I have no memory of this, I sort of looked up at the heavens and I said, I'm a writer. I'm a writer first. And I just reread this and it has a wonderful ring to it to me. Yeah, it really does. Um, and, and, and so I was a writer when I, you know, when I, I, I actually got to England because I was studying through an American college um, in London and Oxford, uh, Antioch college mm -hmm. and 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 i went to get an mfa a, a writer's degree and um you know then i got into the garden so the writing really did come first but um yeah i don't know they they go hand in hand and and that's how it's been for 30 some years yeah share a little bit of your experience of of farming here versus england and how your experience would see it in other areas of the country i mean what are some of the benefits oh boy. here. Yeah, it's so, um, I mean, it's very particular that farming here, and I, I feel very um, uh, honored to, to you know, farm in a place that has such a long and rich farming tradition. Of course, that was true in Cornwall and for a longer, mm -hmm. a longer period. But that was really, um, the thing about farming in England, it was really, it was really gardening, um, was, was the, the legacy of thousands of years of, of English love of the land and love. And that, I, that was passed on by the mm -hmm. mentors I had there. Um, and here it was just, it was a newer experience, right? Even from those, um, farmers that I, I learned from when I started. And I had to learn a lot quickly because, um, you know, one of the things about working uh, the soil wherever you are is you really have to know the soil and the weather conditions and what happens with the seasons and when the changes come and when the insects come mm, and all that sort yeah. of thing. And so I did learn that from from uh, luckily from a number of farmers here. But the the the, the thing that stands out for me about farming 
in this region is that, you know, we're in zone seven on the USDA map uh, and, and, and zone seven begins in Texas and loops up around and we're the right. last, you know, whole stronghold on, on, on in the Northeast to be in zone seven. That means we have a very long growing season and that's a real blessing. And that's one reason why the farming tradition is so strong here is because um, when I talk to other farmers um, in New York state about, you know, when things are germinating or when we're harvesting and all that, they, well, actually I can't talk about it because they're just jealous because <laughs> <laughs> yes. it's very different than in zone five or zone yeah. four upstate in the Adirondacks <laughs> or something. So that's the main factor up here. And the other factor um, I was actually blessed in both places of, of being able to work with really rich um, soil and, and, and the glacial soil here is the silt loam is one of the best soils in the world, really. So that, that's a, a wonderful factor about uh, working with the soil here. Well, we're blessed, certainly, Scott, with you. Um, I want to thank you for making our earth a better and more nourishing place and sharing your impactful words with us today. That was Scott Chasky, Director Emeritus, Quail Hill Farm, poet, farmer, and educator, and author. For more with Scott, visit scottchasky.com, where you can get updated information on his books, readings, and appearances. Now I want to leave you with a wonderful reading from Scott. Uh, here's a poem called Strewn with Stars, and... Um, that is the meaning of the word sidereal, which will, you will hear in the poem, Strewn with Stars. After your kindness, daughter, I turn to admire the night sky, not the insistent dark towing us into an endless popcorn of stars we delight to name, Arcturus, Capella, Castor and Pollux, Cassiopeia, the queen, but to starlight within our mineral body, a bright burrow of distant suns alive within, caressed by the heat of earth, caressed by the music of crickets and cicadas, welling from white oaks, soil dwellers and sidereal, under the influence of September, to remind us that miracle is very close at hand and deliberately ethereal. For more food, culture, and lifestyle tips, guest interviews, and our podcast, visit WLIW.org radio and ChefGeorgeHirsch.com. And join our conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WLIWFM and at George Hirsch. I guess we should point out, I'm going to get back to chips directly because yeah. I, I have a little thing we need to to do today but first let's talk about like the potatoes itself you know uh there's so many there's there's hundreds of types of, of different types of potatoes uh potato chips of course are, are made from a very dry starchy potato like a russet but the you know favorite potato we make a lot of times is with yukons because yeah it is an all-around good starchy buttery potato and creamy potato well, I think it's important to to mention, like you're doing, the different types of potatoes for different uses, because you're going to get a better result depending on what 
you're doing with your potatoes. You know, I, I know that the Yukon Golds, when we make mashed potatoes out of them, it just comes out so creamy and rich and luscious. Uh, I like to roast red potatoes. I like to make, you know, like a big steak fry or, or a French fry out of, you know, a traditional Idaho brown potato. There's the vichyssoise. There's, you know, the cold potato soup. There's the hot potato soup, you know, and Yukons are ideal with that. One of the things that you have made tonnage with us in our different events and project is shepherd's pie yeah a lot of shepherd's pie i thought you were gonna say potato leek soup too because i know when we were doing our sunday supper soup drives mm -hmm. i i mean i don't even know would we make like 15 20 gallons of potato leek soup and it sold out in 45 minutes in 45 minutes yeah and the crazy thing about that is this is such a good lesson for buying local and shopping at local farms because Potato leek soup is super, super simple. If you just have really good potatoes, really good fresh leeks, a nice stock, and a little bit of cream, that's it. Those are your four ingredients, and that is one of the most flavorful soups there is. And if you get, you know, a supermarket dead out of season potato and, and a leek that got flown in from another country, it might be good. And there's tricks you can do to doctor it up. But if you just have a really good fresh local potato and a really beautiful local leek, the flavor is out of this world. I mean, people are always asking, um, oh, we need the recipe. We need the recipe. But you can give somebody a recipe, but what you can't give them is the, uh, the foundation. And the foundation is the ingredients that you are acquiring for the recipe. So like your uh, potato leek soup, if, you, if your potatoes don't have that earthiness um, and sourcing local potatoes, whether you're in Maine and you're sourcing Maine potatoes or you're, you're uh, you know, in, in you know, the heartland of the country, you know, the, the, the earth from your area and your region is, is ideal. Now, here on Long Island, you know, we were a potato growing uh, area with some of the best, best potato. We were like number three producers back post-World War II in potatoes. Now I think we're like number 50 or something. You know, yeah. it was, it went from, uh, I think, 100,000 acres down to less than 8,000 acres today. So there's very little potatoes that are being produced here in our area, but they're spectacular. They're absolutely spectacular. Well, potatoes have a funny history too. One wild fact that I found out about potatoes that I had no idea is that they were originally found in South America. Now, in the region of the Andes, where people were doing things like building pyramids and temples on par with the Egyptians, I think that they were first cultivated potatoes at around 8,000 BC. Mm -hmm. And they were brought back to Europe by Spanish conquistadors. But the wild potatoes that grew in those Andean mountain regions actually were originally poisonous. They were laced with poison because that was nature's way of keeping them protected. But they were such a hardy crop that it could grow in such crazy climates that it really was what sustained these people to achieve such high levels of culture. But the way that they were able to get around the toxin thing is that there was a wild animal that was a relative of the llama, and it would lick clay before eating poisonous plants. And the toxins actually stick to the clay and pass through the digestive system without killing them. So in some of these mountainous areas of South America, people have learned to dunk their wild potatoes in a mud mixture of clay and water and uh, eat the potatoes and it wouldn't kill them. Eventually they bred the poison out of it. But I just thought, like, what ingenuity to watch how an animal eats and then 
find a way to mimic that and eat a crop that is life-sustaining, allowed them to build these cultures and uh, stay healthy while doing it. You know, potatoes are the quintessential comfort food. It makes us think of of just good times, I think. It's just it's just for me anyway, yeah. you know. And, for and they're people. everywhere. They're they could be they're another universal food. I mean, they're all over this country and all over the world, and there's history in potatoes everywhere you look. I know um something we didn't cover and I said I was going to get back to it, but I think real quick we should we should do this. Um, we don't have much time, but we're gonna play name that chip. And I'm going to give you the name of the chip, <laughs> and you're going to actually name the country. All right. First one should be easy for you. It's called a kartoffel chip. Germany. Okay. Yes. Uh, next would be McCoy's. Ireland. Um, United Kingdom. Close. Oh, uh, this one. Come on. I'm gonna... That one's such a trick question. Okay. The next one, San Carlo. Could be confusing. Go with your first instinct. Spain. Italy. Okay. The last one, and I you may like have game that much, and you may, and you may have even, you may have even had this one, a Simba, Simba chip, South Africa. You got it, buddy, and you have one. Play this chip. <laughs> I don't think I did. That was a bad showing. Comfort foods can remind us of our childhood and family. Foods may also be connected to a particular person, like your mother or grandmother, or an event in your life, like a birthday or holiday. It's such a special type of food that can have a deep meaning for many different reasons for each of us. I would even say comfort food has the power to transport us to our happy place. Glad to have you join us on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. Our producer is Delaney Hafner along with production support from Kyle Lynch. Supervising producer is Allie Gimble. George Hirsch and Diane Michelli are co-executive producers. George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio is a co-production of Hirsch Media and Audio Engagement Group, LLC. Thanks so much for tuning in to George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, the show that celebrates how our lives are connected through food and culture. For more episodes and our podcast, visit wiw.org radio and chefgeorgehirsch.com and your favorite streaming and podcast platforms. We'll see you next week right here on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio.